Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Teaching Startups to Fish podcast, Sales, Scale, and Startups. It's only been a couple of weeks since I shot and released the last episode, and I couldn't be more keen to dive in again, especially because of the guest we have on today. With me here is Will Bosma. Welcome, Will. Thanks, Malone. Good to be here. Ah, that is awesome. Awesome. And this isn't the first time, this isn't the first time we're talking, right? Like I've been picking your brain for the past couple of years on everything that we need to know around scaling, hiring people, hiring for the right roles, and you know, everything top to bottom. And I got a lot of value from those conversations, right? So I think a bunch of people are going to get as much, if not more, value. So yeah, thanks again for actually agreeing to come on. Yeah, not at all, mate. And um, you know, look, I've enjoyed those discussions you and I have had over the last couple of years and and obviously. You know, being transparent and involvement in in Bindi Maps is uh, is something that's that's actually still very important in in my life. So it's good. And just a bit of background as well. So the involvement in Bindi Maps. So Will is actually one of our investors that has gotten us through a lot of tough times, both financially and with his advice. So I just couldn't be more grateful to have you on. As a bit of a kickstart, let's just uh, always like to give people a bit of a background. So just you know, tell us who's Will, what's your background, where'd you come from, and how did you get there? Okay. All right. So who am I? Look, I ended up in the IT industry in the late 80s. And in some ways, it was, as was most of my career, a bit of an accident. I didn't start in IT. I didn't think about going into the IT world. But I got involved as a result of doing some work around production systems and inventory control systems. And then made my way over to Vendorland at that time, selling ERP systems. So from 1988, I did 12 years of, of ERP systems. And then I joined a company that some people remember called Siebel. And Siebel, in many ways, invented the CRM category. Then Siebel got bought by Oracle. Then I left Oracle, did my own startup for a while. So I know how difficult it is. And then from there, was fortunate enough to get the gig at MuleSoft, which uh, saw me become their first employee for Asia Pacific and Japan and build the business there from scratch. So that was what I did for the last seven years of my career. So tell me a bit about MuleSoft. I mean, what do they do? And when you started, what did the company look like? And, And by the time you were finished with it, what did it look like? It was interesting. I was recruited into MuleSoft by some folks that I knew from a a previous life. And it was kind of interesting because when I first started looking at them, they're an integration platform, what they are. And there'd been integration platforms around for quite some time. And yet, you know, they were trying to convince me that this was different. And, you know, I did some diligence. And in the end, I was convinced by a couple of things. Their approach to integration was different to what had gone before. They had pretty much started in the world of cloud. So they were streets ahead of anyone else in terms of having a, a cloud platform for integration, which with the advent of SaaS was obviously pretty important. So when I when I joined, <laughs> I vividly remember I, I went over headquarters was in San Francisco. I went over for kickoff that year, and our global sales target was twenty million USD. So this that was across the Americas and APAC, and I think we had around twenty salespeople globally thereabouts. And I think the company was about 80. 
in total. When we did the kickoff, we had the whole company and we did it all in, in kind of one little part out the back of the office, which was quite different. And my sales target for my very first year was just over 2 million. And I had, at the same time as I started, I had two salespeople start and a pre-sales person. So there were four of us were sent out into the big wide world of Asia Pac to try and get the business started. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, so I guess the second part of your question was, so by the time I left, we'd, we'd taken the company public. That was in 2017. We'd then subsequently been bought out by Salesforce in May. I think it was um, completed of 2018. By that stage, you know, we had at the time of acquisition, we were, I think, about 1,800 people globally <laughs> and 400 salespeople globally. We were at the time. From an ARR perspective, we were oh, we were about three fifty million growing at one hundred percent per annum. And then after the acquisition, I wanted to obviously make sure that the acquisition went well from the integration perspective between MuleSoft and, and Salesforce. So MuleSoft was left as a standalone brand, but obviously working very close with the with the bigger Salesforce team. And then with the new resources that we had as courtesy of the acquisition, I spent the last year actually getting MuleSoft Japan up and running. That is very impressive going from 20 mil target to 350 mil ARR. And I just want to mention, so I, when I first heard about MuleSoft, I find it quite hard to wrap my head around what they do, but yeah. I was speaking to someone from MuleSoft and they put it in a great way. They said, you know, when a large organization like a bank, for example, gets a bunch of different software platforms from, you know, check-ins to customer management to, you know, workplace management, many other things. MuleSoft will actually come in and make them all talk to each other. Yeah, so that was an easy way for me to understand that. That's right. And what it allows companies to do is it allows them to choose software that's fit for purpose in all parts of their operations and yet use MuleSoft as a platform to make them all talk together and, and exchange data so that hopefully what you get is a seamless experience. You know, it's interesting, the average large enterprise, the bank is a great example, would have more than a thousand ap different applications internally, which I know that surprises some people, but you know, they're complex operations and making all of that work together is no small task. Mm. It also meant that MuleSoft, I mean, obviously it was very much an enterprise play and secondly, quite a complex sale. So, you know, when I talk about what we did in MuleSoft, and we, the market recognized MuleSoft as having one of the best sales organizations in the market, but it's all in the context of a pretty complex sale as well. So talk to me a little bit about that, right? That being one of the top sales organizations. And so what, what are the different roles? Like, what does the sales team look like at MuleSoft? How do you structure the entire sales team? We tried different things at different times, but the model that we eventually settled on, what I would call the tip of the spear never really changed. So we we invested very heavily and from day one in a, we call it ADR, account development reps, but you know, some people call them BDR, some people call them SDR, sales development reps, doesn't really matter too much what terminology you use, but clearly these are, element of the sales team that's focused on 
creating pipelines, taking what marketing delivers in terms of marketing leads and turning them into actually qualified sales opportunities. Then we had a, a sales organization. Initially, the sales organization was more geographic based than anything else. But as we got bigger, and I think this happens with most companies, we ended up becoming the territories for the salespeople became more vertically based. And it, MuleSoft really, as an application in its own right, or as a platform in its own right, wasn't particularly geared towards a specific vertical. But what you do find is that most industries have pretty unique nomenclature and jargon and acronyms and all sorts of things. And if you're, as a salesperson and an SDR, if you, you know, if you're able to intelligently speak to people about their industry and the industry issues and use terminology that they're used to, then I think that you're going to be a much more effective sales organization. So as we grew, we became more verticalized in terms of the way that we were structured. And then there's the, the element of the third element of what I consider to be a sales organization, and that's customer success. And I say that because, you know, today most software companies are software as a service. And as a result of that, you are constantly, every year, in fact, having to get customers to renew with you. And I think that that places a different emphasis on actually generating results and being able to generate outcomes for the customer very quickly. We did try a couple of different iterations with customer success, Maladin. We, at one point, made them actually responsible for the renewals, and we actually found that didn't work too well. We found that their role got compromised in some ways. They were torn between focusing on getting the, a renewal done and potentially expanding the customer's footprint versus generating outcomes for the customer. And then the customer themselves sometimes got a little conflicted about, well, who's responsible for the financial relationship? Is it my account executive or is it my customer's success representative? So in the end, we went back and separated customer success out from the renewal process and just got them to focus on customer outcomes. So I noticed you said, you know, ADRs going into account execs and then going into CS, but did you have anyone in particular that was focusing on account management or was that the account executive's role to nurture those accounts and expand through and manage whatever they needed? The account exec was responsible for what we would call account management. So all aspects of the sales relationship with someone, both through the course of the sale process, but also then through ensuring that the appropriate resources are applied to the account post the sale and working with the customer success people to make sure that as we're coming up to renewal time that the customer's in a good position and also helping the customer and actively working with the customer to try and increase the footprint because you know one of the things that you want to do as a software as a service business is you want to from year to year continue to increase the footprint inside a customer. Now, with MuleSoft, there's the way that the product was licensed. There were also lots of opportunities to expand usage. So as the business matured, in fact, we found that about 50% of the business came from add-on. So it was a very important part of what we did. Yeah, awesome. And, and you mentioned 
for the SaaS industry. I mean, we talked about that quite a bit. So can you tell me in, in your opinion, what like why is SaaS different or special in comparison to other industries? I mean, if at all. Yeah, I think there are some significant differences between a model where you've got software as a service and a model where somebody is buying a perpetual license to software. And I think that one of the reasons why it has become very popular is because I actually think it's good for the customer. Because the vendor wants to renew the business year after year, they're much more focused, I think, on generating outcomes and results so that the customer will renew from year to year. I think it results in a much better and much closer relationship for the customer. I think that it also means that the whole sales process, including the renewal, is a lot more about adding value to the customer beyond the sale itself. And I think it puts the customer in the driving seat. So in the old days, you bought a perpetual license to something, you know, you paid your maintenance every year of 15 or 18% or 20% or whatever it is. But in between all of that, you never really heard from the vendor very much. You were pretty much left to your own devices. And, you know, the maintenance stream sort of gave you access to upgrades when they came along. Whereas in the software as a servicing, you know, there's a lot more focus on iteration of the product and getting new product out there because you want people to renew every year, right? And so there's much more focus in terms of, I think, in terms of velocity. So I think it's a really good model for the customer and, you know, done well, then you'll, you can look forward to having a very lengthy relationship with that customer that sees your footprint increase over time. There are some other differences clearly when it comes to contracting and some of the big differences that take customers a while to get their head around if they've been used to perpetual license in the past then things like limitations of liability and a whole host of contractual questions are quite different in software as a service world because you've got a much reduced exposure. You've got an exposure of whatever the term is, 12 months as opposed to forever. And from a sales perspective, if we're talking about SaaS companies or professional services companies, for example, should they be structuring their sales teams with that sort of predictable revenue model where you have your SDRs feeding into AEs to AMs to CS and so on? Or do you think that they should opt for more the full cycle sales type of salespeople? You know, I think, honestly, I think the answer to that question depends a little bit on the complexity of what it is that you're selling. I think if you're selling relatively simple solution that perhaps doesn't require a lot of support in terms of the implementation and so on, then probably a simpler model, you know, maybe with uh, with a ADR, SDR, BDR at the front and an account manager is what you need. And you may not even need customer success. You know, I'm thinking about maybe an example like MYOB or something, a relatively straightforward financial package where there aren't too many different ways to implement it customers can get on and do it themselves or zero might be another example of that mm-hmm. so i think it does depend a little bit on the complexity of the sale and the complexity of the solution length of sale cycles and a whole host of things like that but i think if you're an enterprise class solution and you're trying to sell into medium to large enterprises then i think that is probably the model that you should think about adopting. And you and I have had the discussion a couple of times. 
account execs are not great prospectors. They love a good account exec, loves the art of the sale, is really good at leading a prospect through a sales process. It's one of the things we look for as a characteristic, someone who can lead. And they spend a lot of time trying to add value during the course of the sales process to the prospect. They typically are not great at cold calling. <laughs> They're not particularly great at doing follow-up from marketing campaigns and so on. And, you know, we kind of look for sales reps or account execs to produce some portion of their own pipeline. So we expect them to do a little bit of their own prospecting. But I think it's unrealistic to expect a sales rep with everything else that's on their plate to be responsible for generating all of their own pipeline in a complex sale. And you mentioned we had this conversation. So, we're, I mean, I've heard of a lot of different opinions on this and, and where I'm sort of, where my mind is on the future of sales and how everything works is like, imagine imagine a perfect world where you link all your different tools. Like we use a system called Zoom Info and they have like intense searches, which shows you what companies are searching for certain topics. Um, I use another system called Crystal Nose, which analyzes LinkedIn profiles. Um, I use my LinkedIn, I use my email, I use a bunch of other tools. Now imagine someone aggregates all of those and takes all of that templated crap that we send out to people, changes that to some artificial intelligence tech that you know manages all that personalization based on all the different software products you have linked, sends out personalized videos and emails, and just books in a call immediately with the AE. And then the AE takes it through to customers to closing to customer success. And then the SDR would essentially, in that perfect future world, would wrap under marketing. So what do you think about that? My caution here would be. The research is pretty clear in that what customers value is they value the process itself and organizations that can add value to their evaluation. So they said that something like 52% of their reason for making a particular decision, that is choosing your software over someone else's, 52% of that decision was based on the quality of the sales process itself and the interaction and the value that is created by the sales organization across that, you know, SDR, account exec, customer success role. So a very significant part of their decision process is actually the quality of that interaction and the value that people add. Look, I'm a great believer in artificial intelligence and all the other things that it can do for us, but I don't know that it's as nuanced yet that it can substitute for that kind of experience. Hey, mm -hmm. in the future, maybe that day will come, but I think we're a little ways from it at this point. And talking about adding value through the sales process, I was listening to a podcast recently. Um, it was Make It Happen Mondays by John Barrows, and he was talking about that exact thing of like SDRs adding value in calls. And he gave an example of where, he went to buy a new Tesla and it was like, you can buy the car online on their website. And it was like over 60 grand. So it was like, you know what, I'm going to call them up and see, you know, can they tell me more about it? So he got in touch with this SDR and the SDR literally just opened up the brochure on the internet. He was on the same webpage and he was just reading it out. And he asked him, he goes, well, are you just reading out the brochure? And he goes, yeah. yeah. And then he just says, well, what value are you adding right now to this conversation? And he goes, nothing really. You can just get it all online. So then he was just like, well, you know, I may as well just get all my stuff online. So it's interesting to see that large companies and, and relatively innovative companies are 
going down that path of just releasing everything online and letting people make their own decisions and do their own research. Yeah, but again, you know, one of the things that our experience at MuleSoft was, you know, when I first arrived at MuleSoft, and I think the thing that's interesting is MuleSoft was an open source company and still is to this day. So every year they release an open source version of the product which anyone can download for free and, and use. Even more than a Tesla, here, here you can download the product and test drive the thing, right? And even put it into production. And when I first arrived, the whole sales process was about, we would contact people because we obviously track that and we track downloads. And so we would contact people who had downloaded the product, try and find out what their experience was like, and then try and convert them into paying support. And we talked to them a little bit about what the advantages were of getting support from the vendor. And secondly, we had a second level of offering, which was an enterprise product. So we'd had a few more features on it. That was a pretty simple sale process and generally resulted in about a 30 grand average sale. <laughs> Four years later, we got the average sale up over $200,000. And how had we done that? Well, firstly, what we found was just, just following up open source downloads, we tended to be talking to the wrong people. So we tended to be talking to people who had a project but weren't really thinking about more broadly what the organization needed. And so they didn't have an organizational view about what an integration platform might do for them. We also ourselves weren't thinking about, therefore, the enterprise more holistically. So one of the things we did fairly early was we introduced enterprise selling you know i mean this is basic stuff getting to getting to understand their requirements understanding our solution trying to match those two things together you know and there's a series of processes that you go through for that and really getting a holistic view of the organization and obviously that helped us grow our average sale by quite a deal but we found that that probably wasn't enough to differentiate in the sales experience either. And so we ended up moving to our version. Now it was our version, but our version of the challenger sale. And the challenger sale is a little bit about getting the customer to think differently about the problem that they're trying to solve. That was very real to us because people would come to us trying to, trying to solve a problem, which was, you know, I need to connect Salesforce. Most common problem was I'm getting Salesforce for my CRM. I've got SAP in the back office. How do I integrate those two things? Now you can solve that problem, but then, you know, the challenger says, okay, well, we can solve that problem, but have you thought about all of the other applications in your portfolio and how those things might talk together? How do we simplify some of those processes? How do we help you with your digital transformation? Because unless all parts of your organization work together, then it's very hard for you to transform some of your processes and deliver a different experience. So Challenger was about, as a sales organization, engaging with the customer. We used to talk about meeting them where they are. So understanding what the problem is that they're trying to solve. And then essentially going, yeah, we can do that and this is how we do it, but let's think more broadly about some of the challenges that you face and how we might be able to help you in a slightly different way. So, and that really made a substantial difference in terms of our ability to do larger deals. 
And that is a huge increase going from 30K to 200K. Oh, yeah. Um, but let's take a back, right? Going back to startup founders, right? So people that have, yep. you know, an entire organization of five people, for example. And we were lucky in our company, Bindi Maps, we were really lucky to have people that complement each other with their skill sets. And we have someone in charge of tech, someone in charge of accounting and finance and sales. And we've got pretty much all bases covered. But that's, you know, a perfect world example, whereas most startup founders, you know, let's say they come in from a technical background, they have no sales experience and they hire a few devs or however they structure their organization. When is it, how do they know when it's time to hire a salesperson? Like, I mean, I'm a strong believer in founders should be getting the first few sales through the door before they opt for hiring salespeople. But I'd love to hear from you, like what, when, when is it time to hire a salesperson? And also when you do, do you recommend immediately structuring it in the whole SDR, AECS way? Or do you reckon get some full cycle sales that could potentially grow into that leadership role and then manage their sales team? Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Sorry, that was quite a bit there, Tom. Yeah. yeah. Look, I understand, you know, a lot of this conversation so far has been about when MuleSoft was at scale. So, you know, if I go back, Obviously, when you're when you're a complete startup and there's only three or four of you in the organisation, I think founders typically fall into two categories. One is they might be a founder who developed product, in which case they're probably not going to necessarily be very good at the sales process. I've found honestly that there's very few technically focused product founders who do very well in the sale process just it's a completely different world yourself did fortunately in in uh, the founder there was a guy called ross mason and ross was both brilliant from a product perspective but he was also very good in front of customers however it didn't take very long before he understood that that was not a it's not scalable and b he needed to continue to focus on the product development and so very quickly started to get in some salespeople. But, you know, you have to, when you're first starting out, you've got to be very flexible and sure, yeah, the founder will get the first couple in the door, no question. But then as soon as you start getting a bit of growth, then you've got to think almost from day one about how you're going to grow your sales organisation because you'll need to do it earlier than you always think. You, you will always need to do it earlier than you might have believed. And you'll need to, if you want to scale, and, the, and that's the issue, right? The question is, if you want to be a high growth organization, then you're going to have to learn to scale your sales organization very, very quickly. Because to my mind, the software company has really got two assets, the product and the people. And in terms of growing the business, then frankly, the most important thing is to grow your sales organization quickly enough to be able to generate the growth that you want. So if you're wanting to grow at 100% plus per annum, and a lot of startups do, then you've got to be thinking about how do I double my sales organization every year? Now, that's, 
You know, when you start with two and you go to four, that's not so bad. <laughs> when you go from four to eight, you know, eight to 16, 16 to 32, it doesn't take very long before this becomes a real problem. And how quickly you need to do it, how far ahead of time you need to do it will depend on the length of your sales cycle a bit. And it will also depend on how long it takes salespeople to become effective in your world. So pretty quickly from the earliest days, pretty quickly, you'll need to grow out a sales organization. We can put it in perspective, Maladin, I guess, with some numbers. If we said, you know, I'll just, I'll do it in round terms, but, you know, let's say our target's a million bucks for the year. And maybe our sales quota is 500. Well, you'd say, well, I need two salespeople to cover the million dollars. Well, yeah, that'd be true if sales, if every salesperson always met their target, but in the real world, that's not what happens. And so we typically plan for about 30% average. That says I need enough salespeople to generate 1.3. Okay, now my, maybe my average sales cycle is six months. Now, let's presume that the year starts on the 1st of January and my target's 1 million. Well, okay, that means that for me to start generating business on the 1st of January going forward, I need to have pipeline building from the 1st of July. <laughs> through the previous year and I need three salespeople to try and generate a million bucks because maybe two of them are on board now and maybe one comes in, in October and they don't start being effective until partway through the year. Then the next year I want to do, and by the way, it takes it probably takes about six months for a salesperson to onboard and understand my solution and be able to pitch it correctly and competently go through a sales cycle from from scratch. Okay, so then the following year, my target's going to be 2 million. Well, now I need six salespeople and I need to make sure that I recruit two of them at least. So I should have four on board by the middle of the previous year and two coming on board during the second half of the year, getting ready for it. And you can see how very quickly you end up with this problem. But you absolutely have to grow your sales organization well ahead of time if you want to meet your targets during the course of the year mm -hmm. you know because you've got sales cycle but you've also got what i would call the effectiveness cycle how long does it take that person to become effective in your business and so then what's interesting is as you start the scale the problem in some ways it's a recruiting it's always a recruiting problem and we'll i guess we'll talk about you know, what you should look for in salespeople. But it's always a recruiting problem. And let me tell you, in a startup, and this was true for the entire seven years that I was at MuleSoft, I spent at least 40% of my time interviewing. So that problem never goes away. And as a startup, get used to it. If you want to grow at scale, then that's what's going to happen. But what happens over time is, is that the focus also moves to enablement. How can I get bring not only bring people on board, that's the recruiting issue, but secondly, how can I make them more effective more quickly? That's the enablement issue. And so you'll find that three or four years down the track, enablement becomes a real issue and something that you need to start to 
think about investing in in its own right. I completely agree. I mean, recruitment is a huge issue. We've been lucky enough with our ramp and and the way that we do the enablement side of things. So we, yeah, I think that's going pretty well. But on the recruitment side, especially not coming from a recruitment background, uh, it's it was so hard for me just to figure out, you know, who am I hiring? Why am I hiring them? And what yeah. do I hire them for? So if you can just break that down a little bit for me. So, you know, what do you hire for when you're hiring salespeople? Yeah. So I guess the first rule of hiring salespeople, frankly, is that the best indicator of future success is past success. So, you know, and and sales is the beautiful profession that success is relatively easy to judge, you know. Has the salesperson consistently made or exceeded their numbers? You know, that, that's the first question. If they're not making their numbers and during the course of the recruitment process, if they're very cagey about what their targets were and what their performance was against target and so on, then to me, that's an enormous red flag. Great salespeople can tell you what their sales results have been to the dollar, and they can tell you easily for the last four or five years what their performance has been against targets and so on. So the first thing you look for is, has this person been successful before? It doesn't have to be in, in your particular industry, in your particular solution area. So, and particularly for Bindi Maps is a great example. There aren't many others. So you, you're hardly likely to be recruiting from competitors very much. But that's the first thing. The second thing you look for or at least I looked for was how did they get their numbers? So diving deeply into how do they go about structurally approaching their territory? If they had a an ADR or an ADR organization, how did they work with it? You know, what was their thought process in terms of how they managed their territory and, you know, strata their accounts and, you know, what strategy did they employ in terms of the accounts that they were going after and so on. So, for me, not a, getting the numbers is the most important question. The second most important one was how did they do that? Then I think there's a few other things that we look that we look for, and it was pretty difficult to get through the recruitment process in yourself. But we look for cognitive ability. You want people who are smart, right? You want people who can figure things out. You want people who, particularly in a startup. You want people who don't see themselves confined by a title. You know, I'm a sales rep. Oh, okay. But in a startup, you might want that account executives to be thinking about how can I improve the implementation process as well? Because, you know, that's going to get me to the add-on business quicker. So you want people with good cognitive ability who've also shown in the past that they are willing to go outside their area of responsibility to generate results. We had a golden rule and we look for it. So I guess there's the IQ and there's the EQ. We look for good human beings. And in fact, it was one of our core principles, right? And, you know, excuse the French, but the code for that was no assholes allowed. We want people who think about company first, team second, self last. Now, salespeople, don't always get that, but pretty self they're pretty motivated and self-driven and focused on their individual results. But you do want people who see the bigger picture. We look for people who could lead, and I alluded to that earlier. In a complex sales process, you want someone who can lead the customer through the process and not just 
follow the customer's wishes, if you like. So the customer might say, you know, we're going to do A, B, C, then D, then E. And you really want someone who says, yeah, I understand that, but let's talk about what might be a, a more process that will generate a better outcome for you in a shorter period of time. You want someone who can lead them through the cost-benefit analysis as, as well as lead them through understanding what the solution does and the results that it can generate. So someone who can lead is a really important characteristic. Mm-hmm. If they also talk to you in terms of benefits that customers receive, you know, then you're starting to go down the right track as well. So they're the primary things that we look for, good track record. You know, how do they go about growing their business or their portfolio of business? Strong cognitive ability, able to work as part of a team and then able to lead the customer. I think they're pretty key attributes. So now we've got everything that we look for and everything that we're assessing people on. But now, I mean, since COVID came around and there's a whole work from home culture and people aren't going out into the office, all those incentives that they had for being at an organization around, you know, water cooler talks, dinners, you know, beers with the team on Fridays or whatever it is, that's all gone, right? Because people are working from home. So what are some things we can do to incentivize people to actually come and apply to work at the company? You know, honestly, I don't know that the social aspects of working at a company were a big motivator for people to join. Not something that I've really thought about very much before, Maladin, but I don't think most people make a decision to go and join a company on the basis of, you know, there's a great social environment that's built around it. I mean, look, what they will want to know is they will want to know because culture is culture. It doesn't matter whether you're working in the office or not. So, and I think they will look for organizations that have great core values, whatever those core values are. It's something that resonates with them. I'm a great believer in, and again, there's quite a bit of research around Dan Pink and a bunch of others who talk about what are the primary motivation motivation tools and things that not only attract people but keep them. I've always, in my own mind, I think about it as amping the organisation, AMP. So the first thing that people really value is autonomy. They want to know that they're going to have the ability to do their role and not be micromanaged and have a certain sense of autonomy. And that's, you know, that's, I mean, it almost comes with working from home. You're going to have a lot more autonomy than you're used to. But even so, I mean, autonomy is really important to people. Second thing is mastery. So people want an opportunity to become very good at what they do. And so an organization that provides an opportunity for mastery, whether it's through additional training that the organization provides, or whether it's through skills acquisitions in other ways, practical ways, mastery is also really important. Um, And people join an organization because they believe that they will become better at what they do. And when they choose to leave that organization, it will open up further opportunities for them. And then, you know, the last one in that is purpose. And I think people want to have 
a really strong sense of purpose for the organization that they work with. And I think Bindi Maps is a great example where I think purpose is pretty clear. And I think you, you buy into that purpose. That's not always so clear for a lot of enterprise software companies. You know, I think Salesforce is an organization that speaks to purpose extremely well, but a lot of others don't. And so autonomy, mastery, and purpose are really important for people. And, and I think strong cultural values, they want to know, it's the most common, one of the most common questions I get, you know, people say to you, so what's the culture of the organization like? And culture can be hard to describe. You know a bad culture when you see it, <laughs> but people want to feel like the organization they're about to join is a good place to work, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean some of those social things that you talk about. They also want to know, frankly, they will want to know about the leadership generally, and they will want to know kind of the leadership values and whether or not those leaders have got their back. And I think that's a, during the course of a interview process. I think that that's something that's pretty important to explore. I've gotten that question a few times throughout interviews when I've been interviewing people. And I think that it reflects so well on the candidates when they turn around and they say, you know, what sort of a culture do you have at your organization? And, you know, what, what's the leadership like? Because to me, that just shows that they're not looking at hop and skip through within three to six months, move to another role. They're actually looking for some, for an organization that fits them as well and where they can perform and, and tick off or tick off the entire AMP thing that you mentioned as well around autonomy and mastery and purpose, right? So any people going out for job interviews, listening to this, please ask those questions. They're really important, not just for yourself, but for the organization. And now let's say we've got a bunch of salespeople coming in and culture is really important. And, you know, when everyone's in the office, you have that collaboration, you've got those secondary conversations happening. And, you know, the, how do you keep up with that sort of, that training that comes along with just sitting next to someone and listening in on calls and, and, you know, those impromptu standups that you have and things like that. So is there some ways that you can prepare ahead of time or, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, you know, death by PowerPoint and documents where you just give someone something for two weeks and say, remember it. It's like, how do you stay on top of that? Yeah. That's like one of the hardest questions. <laughs> and I, I, I really haven't, <laughs> Yeah, I've got, I've got to be honest. I mean, you know, it, towards once we really started to focus on enablement we, at Mulesoft, we invested in a learning management platform and developed a whole bunch of content and people, you know, that content, I mean, it was honestly in many ways death by PowerPoint, but, but you know, there were quizzes and hey, all the good things that come with a learning management system. But even so, it's like it was still... I don't know. It's hard to sit down and watch that stuff. So personally, I, I it's the way I learn. I think experiential learning is the best kind of learning. So do ride-alongs. I mean, you as a sales leader, for example, I mean, do ride-alongs with your, with your team. Go out with them. You know, go out and observe them in front of customers and help them in their, in their interactions with their customers. To me, that's like the best way to learn. I do think stand-ups are really important. There's no reason why you can't do those remotely. Do them without an agenda, you know? Like one of the things I loved, and it's a bit harder these days in COVID, but my one-on-ones, I tended to do as walking meetings. 
where you just went for a half an hour or an hour walk with somebody and talked along the way. Get out of the office, get away from the disruptions, leave the phone behind, getting some exercise, which I think is a great thing, but also you're actually, you know, spending some focused time with that individual, not in an artificial sort of office, not artificial, but in a confined office setting. And I, I tended to find, it worked for me anyway, I tended to find that the conversation tended to be more free flowing and broader ranging when you were doing other things at the same time. Look, it's really important once, I know we'll never go back to five days a week in the office, but I, I still think it is important to do team events where you can and also, you know, the odd social odd social meeting outside of hours in order to generate that kind of closer team collaboration. I think all of those things are, are important, but I have not yet seen, personally, I have not yet seen the perfect kind of answer to the enablement. It's a very complex subject. And, you know, some people learn okay by sitting down and watching a bunch of PowerPoints. The other thing that we did do quite a bit, and this goes back to the mastery thing, was we introduced a whole range of certifications. So, you know, we have certifications for customers where they can become confident in the solution, but we had internal certifications as well. So we were a very technical solution. So our primary audience was the CIO, for example. So we had a CIO pitch and you had to become certified in the pitch. You had to do the pitch to somebody and you had to become certified in it and you would have to update your certification from time to time. We had a whole series of sort of presentations that you had to become certified in. And I think having that sort of internal mastery program is also a good thing and it gets people to practice, right? So Mm. in a hopefully construct in front of a constructive audience that's going to give them some good feedback. And so certification wasn't just done by whoever you reported to. It was maybe done by somebody else in another area. That's awesome. I mean, from a training perspective, not many organizations offer that. And it's also a thing of like, it's a matter of capability, right? Like, are you at that point where you can allocate resources to creating that type of training and actually staying on top of it, you know, having a head of people and culture, for example, that would be the dream, right? Imagine not having to focus too much on training and building those materials and things like that and having someone that takes care of that. I mean, that's, I would love to have someone like that on board at Bindi Maps. But another thing that I heard about, sorry, you were going to say something? Oh, look, I was just going to say that, you know, attendant to all that, you talked about people and culture. I mean, we, we did, as we grew, you know, when you're growing quick, you still have challenges. You know, they're different kinds of challenges and mostly they're good challenges, but there are still significant sort of challenges to be addressed and rapid growth can be very difficult for some, some people to deal with. And so we, we did a lot of work on employee surveys and trying to understand what some of the challenges were and you know, what the employees were feeling. And so we did that in a completely anonymized way, very hard when you're very small to make it completely anonymized. And, even like halfway through the my tenure at MuleSoft, we had a lot of freeform questions, and you know I'd get a couple of hundred, we'd get a couple hundred different comments and responses. I could pretty much tell who they who the people were because you just get so used to somebody's style and so on. 
you do have to provide some feedback mechanisms for people because even in a small organization, growing rapidly can lead to some real challenges for people. And you need to understand what they are and you know where they're feeling sort of out of their depth or a little overwhelmed because you really need to get on top of those things to help them out as quickly as you can. Mm. Well, I can sit here unpacking leadership and management with you for the next couple of hours now as well. <laughs> but we're um, we're going to have to wrap things up here. Um, I just want to give your, you this opportunity to you know let people know where they can find you, you know, socials, number, email, whatever you like to just share with your audience. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, well, look, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on Facebook and Insta. I am on those places. I should warn that there is someone else by the name of Will Bosma, but in fact, they work for MuleSoft as well, which was very confusing. <laughs> but I'm the one that's based in Australia. My email address is really simple. It's wmbosma at gmail.com. Happy to hear from anyone who might have a question if they think I can help them around either sales or startups in our tech world. I'm more than happy to try and help wherever I can. Awesome. And I'll, um, I'll share those details in the description of the podcast as well. Will, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And hopefully I'm going to have you on again for an extra 10 or 15 episodes where we dive into so many different topics around sales. <laughs> Always a pleasure, my lady. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Will.